who'd like to be dismissed at Children's Church can find that in the door over here by the piano. For the rest of you, open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 1144, 1144, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. As we finish our study in this three-week sermon series on evangelism or sharing your faith, I've entitled Fishing 101. Today we come to the final installment of it. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, page 1144 in the Pew Bibles. We're going to study the first six verses. Let me read those for you. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the Word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made His light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. I know a, a woman, and I'll just call her uh, Joan, and uh, Joan became a Christian many years ago. And when she became a Christian, she began to share her faith in Christ with the people that she knew and loved, which often happens when people become Christians. They want other people to experience what they've just gone through. And so uh, one of the people that God laid on Joan's heart was her father. And so Joan began to share the gospel with her father and began to invite him to church and talk to him about the faith and pray for him regularly. You know, all the things you do when you really want someone to meet the Jesus whom you've come to meet. And she kept reaching out to him and reaching out to him and uh, uh, despite all that, he, you know, he just wouldn't receive the gospel. And this went on for over 30 years. And he still wouldn't come to Christ. Which raises a question, why not? You know, what, what was the problem? Uh, and maybe some of you can relate to that. You're like, yeah, what is the problem? Am I not saying it right? Am I not presenting it correctly? Am I missing some key argument that if I were to include that, you know, everything would change? But today we, we come, as I said, to the final installment of our study of evangelism. And we're going to study the issue of conversion today. How does a person come to faith in Jesus Christ? What is the, the internal process? What is it that makes a person go from unbelief to faith? from rejecting Christ to loving and worshiping Christ? What is that switch inside? How does that happen? Uh, why is it that someone like Joan's uh, father denied and rejected the gospel for 30 years plus, even though she faithfully presented it and faithfully prayed for him? Did, did she mess something up? Or hypothetically, how can two children raised in a Christian family both of whom heard the same gospel, got taken to the same Sunday schools, you know, and, and went through the same paces, how can one of them come out following Christ faithfully and another one not? You know, what, 
what is it? Did the parents mess up on one but not the other? What's the difference? And so today I want to look at this whole issue of conversion. How does a person come to know Christ? We've looked at the gospel, which is the message. And then last Sunday we looked at evangelism, the delivery of the message. And now I want to look at conversion, the, the, re- the receipt and uh, uh, functionality of the message inside of a person's heart. And to do that I want to look with you at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So if you look at your Bibles, just to give you a little context what we're looking at here. Uh, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 is defending his gospel ministry, which he tended to do a lot in his letters. It seemed like a lot of people were against him and were detractors. And uh, so, so people are attacking Paul's ministry, and he's trying to defend his ministry. And you don't exactly know what the attackers were saying. You know, reading letters in the New Testament is kind of like listening to one side of a phone conversation. You know, and you're trying to figure out what the other guy on the other end is saying. And that's what you do here. You hear what Paul's saying, so you're trying to figure out what the other guys were saying bad about him. And we don't exactly know what these people were saying. But it appears from chapter 4 that they were in some way saying that his gospel ministry was ineffective that it wasn't reaching people, perhaps, that Paul was distorting it or twisting it, or he wasn't doing it right, and as a result, there was an ineffectiveness in people coming to the Lord. Look at verse 1. See if you can pick that up from what Paul's saying. Paul says, Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Look, I'm not discouraged. I know people say I should be discouraged. I'm not discouraged. Rather, he says, verse 2, we have renounced secret and shameful ways, We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So Paul says, look, look, I haven't fouled up with the gospel. I've put it forth plainly. I've laid it out there. I haven't distorted it, twisted it, messed with it. I've been very faithful in sharing the gospel. And many of you can say that. Yeah, I have been faithful in sharing the gospel. Joan had been faithful in sharing the gospel with her father. So, you know, what's the problem? In verses 3 and 4, it's interesting, Paul says the problem isn't the message, the problem is in the recipient. Look at verses 3 and 4. He says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, that is, to those who are outside of Christ. The God of this age, that's another sort of way of saying Satan, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So why weren't the people responding to Paul's message? Paul says, look, I put the gospel out there plainly. The problem is in the hearer. There's something wrong inside the hearer that he just is incapable and unwilling to see what it is I've been talking about. Uh, that's what the problem was with Joan's father. It was... It wasn't her, it wasn't she failed to preach the gospel or share her faith, but there was a spiritual blindness. And there's a problem with the people that you're trying to reach and the problem that we had before we became Christians. This isn't just us then, this is all of us before Christ, that we are spiritually blind. Now this is important. Uh, this means that, that therefore, there's, there's a, an issue here that, that we can't overcome with our own strength. No matter how brightly you shine the gospel, If somebody is blind, they can't see it. No matter how bright the light is, a blind person can't see the light. If you could take one of those big spotlights, you know, they put in front of movie theaters when they open, or a grand opening of a warehouse or a furniture store, you take one of those big spotlights and stick it right up to a blind person's nose, you know, they might feel the heat from the light, but they still won't see the light. So it's not an issue of how brightly you're shining, it's an issue of the spiritual condition 
of the recipient. And, and I think that's important, that this is a spiritual condition that we're in. And I think that's different, because we usually think of sin as an action, not so much a condition. But sin really is a condition. It's, it's a state of being. You know, I, I, we think of sin as certain things I do, like I sin because I told a lie, or I got stoned at a party, or my, my neighbor got a new boat and I coveted it. <laughs> and I was sitting around talking bad behind his back, but the reason was I was just jealous that he got that boat. You know, I did specific actions. And yeah, those things are sin, but what, what we're seeing here is that sin is more than that. It's a state of being. It's a, a life orientation. It's a nature. It's who I am. And the reason I do those little things is because of, of my, the state of my soul and my heart. I am a sinner, therefore I commit different acts of uh, sin. It's a condition. Uh, look at your sermon notes for a minute. You can take these out. I, I listed a couple passages on the front where the New Testament speaks of this sin condition in which we find ourselves. For instance, look on the front. Uh, John chapter 8. That first big quote there. Look at the last sentence in the quote. This is something Jesus told his hearers. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. So it's not just that I sin, but that I, I'm in a state of slavery. I'm bound in this condition of sin. Or look at the next one, Romans 8, 5 to 8. Uh, if you look down to like the third line at the end of that line, the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, get this, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Sin is a condition that controls us and overwhelms us. Or the final one, Ephesians 2. This is a, a very powerful description of our natural condition apart from God's grace. Uh, Ephesians 2 says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live. So that, that deadness obviously is spiritual, because he says you used to live this way. So we are dead when we are alive. We are spiritually dead. When we followed the ways of this world... And the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of the sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. So it wasn't just that I used to do a few bad things. It's that I was bound. I was spiritually dead. I was under the control of the world. I was following Satan. I was just immersed and buried in sin. And, you know, and, and this is our natural condition. This is the way we come into the world. Uh, this, this weekend, my, I, I had to break up a fight between my six-year-old and my two-year-old. And my six-year-old had made the great error of trying to watch while my two-year-old read a book. You know, ooh. <laughs> He's like looking over her shoulder. She's like, no! And he was like, I just want to read the book with you. And he'd sort of scoot next to her. <laughs> she would scream. <laughs> What is wrong? So I look at her, I said, what's wrong? Is, is he messing with you? She said, I don't want him to read the book. My book. You know, and so I had to you know, send her to time out. And, and I put her in time out. And I go, all right, you go in that corner and time out. So she sits there for a second, and she gets up, and she goes to the other corner. You know, it's like, you're not even going to tell me where to be punished. I'm going to be punished right here. So I punished her somewhere else. Uh, um, <laughs> that seemed to do the trick. Uh, but, you know, look, people, we're born with this. I know no one likes the idea of original sin, but, you know, just have a two-year-old. You'll believe in it. It really <laughs> is a real thing. We're born with this orientation that says, no, 
my way. I want it my way. I don't want it God's way. I don't want it your way. And, and it's this sin orientation. Now, let's connect this condition of sin back to evangelism. That means, therefore, that people are unable and unwilling to receive the gospel. That I can't and I don't want to. This is a doctrine that theologians call the doctrine of total inability. Uh, if, you, if you look on the second page of your sermon notes, give you a little theological buzzword you can amaze your friends with at the next party. Total inability. Here's the definition. What does that mean, total inability? This is what Burkhoff says, good definition. He says, when we speak of man's corruption, his sin, his total inability, we mean two things. One, that the unrenewed sinner cannot do any act, however insignificant, which fundamentally meets with God's approval and answers to the demands of God's law. So I can't do anything that's going to ultimately please God. Can I do good things? Of course. But they're always tainted in some way with sin and selfishness so that there's nothing I have in my hand that I can offer up to God. And God says, that is pure. That is what I've been looking for. I can't do it. But not only that, it's worse. Look at the second part of the definition. That the person with total inability cannot change his fundamental preference for sin and self to love for God, nor even make an approach to such a change. I can't desire God, nor do I even want to. That's just this hopeless condition of being in a state of sin. Uh, again, look, look at the first page of the sermon notes. Look at a couple of those quotes that we had earlier. Again, remember John 8, Jesus says, I tell you, everyone who is a sin is a slave to sin. But what's the imagery of slavery? It's being trapped. Or look down at Ephesians 2, that last quote at the bottom of page 1, that first line, As for you, you were dead in transgressions and sins. I wasn't sick in my sins. I wasn't injured in my sins. I wasn't handicapped in my sins. I was dead. Dead people don't respond. You know, Dead people can't respond. You know, let me tell you what evangelism is. Here's evangelism. It's like getting out of our pews, let's go across the street to High Street Cemetery, find a big headstone, stand upon it, and in your most loud and authoritative voice, yell to the graves, Everybody up! <laughs> that's evangelism. When you're doing evangelism, that's what you're doing. You're yelling to a bunch of graves, Everybody up! <laughs> we can't do it. Someone who's spiritually dead cannot respond to the gospel. We don't want to. We can't. It's just not in our nature. And I know someone's going to say, you maybe you're thinking already, whoa, 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 are you saying we have no free will? Are, are we just robots? I mean, is it, I thought we had free will. Isn't that a big part of it? Do you believe in free will? And, you know, to that, whenever people talk about free will, I say, you know, yes and no. I mean, it depends on what you mean by that phrase. I mean, of course we all have free will in the sense that you can do whatever you want. I mean, when you sin, no one's holding a gun to your head telling you to sin. I mean, you do it because you chose to do it. Of course, you, you can choose to do whatever you want to do. But, what do people in a condition of sin want? <laughs> what do they desire? Do they desire to surrender their lives to Jesus Christ? Did, when I was in a condition of sin, did I want the gospel? Did I say, I want to give up my life and live completely for Jesus? Was that my desire? No, my desire was what my two-year-old's was. You know, my book, stay away from me. So, you know, it's, it's like putting the gospel in front of a sinner like I am and like we were before we came to Christ. Putting the gospel in front of someone who's in a condition of sin is like putting a T-bone steak in front of a cow. 
Is cow going to eat the steak? I mean, no. Does the cow not have a, a free choice? Well, of course. I mean, no one's keeping the cow back. You have to put it right in front of the cow. Look, cow, it's up to you. Eat the steak. But I can guarantee you, cow won't eat steak. Sinner won't receive gospel. Because cow don't like steak, sinner don't like gospel. It's how simple it is. So yeah, you have a free will, but my will is not some gyroscopic thing independent of myself. My will is integrated into my whole being. And if my whole being is oriented away from, oriented away from God, then, then I'm never going to choose the gospel. I'm never going to choose the things of God. So that, that's the sinful condition. So that kind of changes the nature of our inquiry, doesn't it? Because we began this by asking, why is it that some people don't turn to Christ? But maybe that's really the opposite or the wrong question. Maybe the right question is, how is it that anyone has turned to Christ? How did that happen? If that's really who I am apart from God, if I am in a condition of sin, then how did I ever get from there to to being a Christian today? How did the Apostle Paul make that journey? And if anyone was in a condition of sin and showed it, it was the Apostle Paul. Because before he was the Apostle Paul, he was the Pharisee named Saul. And he was a bloodthirsty man bent on the destruction of Jesus and his followers. And then something happened, and he became Paul, a man filled with love, and bent on the propagation of Jesus and the making of followers. So you kind of have to ask, like, all right, how did you get from A to B? What took place? And Paul tells us that himself. Look at verse 5, going back to our text. Paul says, For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So how did, how did Paul become a servant of God when he used to be an opposer of Jesus Christ? What took place? Well, fortunately, he tells us in verse 6. He says in verse 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So Paul explains it with an allusion back to the Old Testament. And you probably picked up on the allusion. It comes from that story in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, when God first created everything. And God said, like, like we sang in our Shine Jesus sign song, let there be light. And the lights came on when God spoke. And so God, in his supernatural power, spoke into the darkness and created a light that hadn't been there before. And Paul uses that, and he says, the same thing happened when I became a Christian. He says, God spoke into my heart, let there be light, and suddenly there was light. Suddenly there was illumination. Suddenly I could see. It was was all clear to me. But God had to do it. So just as he made a supernatural miracle back then, he made a supernatural miracle in my life, and he created something that didn't previously exist. He created faith. He created light, life, whatever metaphor you want to use. In fact, if you want to take this even another theological step deeper, this is in the cool stuff. What, what Paul is really saying is that the new creation has begun. That the new heavens and the new earth have begun within me. In fact, he makes it explicit. Look at chapter 5, verse 17. Not to get off on this tangent. But if you're here for Easter, connect that sermon to this one. If you, if you remember, do you remember? Well, forget that. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. So what does it take for someone to become a Christian? It takes a miracle. It takes a new creation. God has to speak a light into that person's heart. 
Uh, we call this the doctrine of regeneration. I, I gave you the doctrine of total inability. This is the doctrine of regeneration. In fact, look at your sermon notes again on page 2. Here's a pithy de- definition of regeneration. Look at the uh, page 2, about halfway down. Regeneration is a secret act of God in which he imparts new spiritual life to us. So God has to impart new spiritual life. Before we can come out of our graves, God's got to resuscitate us spiritually. Before I can say yes to the gospel, God has to to turn my heart and give me a new heart. He has to do something within me because I'm lost without it. And Jesus taught this uh, in uh, John chapter 3. In, in that case, he didn't use the imagery of the new creation. He used the imagery of birth. Maybe you've heard this one. Look at the sermon notes again. And underneath that regeneration quote, look at this one from John 3. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Same concept, just different image. That's all. You have to be born again. Maybe you've heard that phrase, born again Christian. And, you know, whenever I bring that up, I always kind of wince a little bit just because I know that when you hear that phrase, it's like, oh, yeah, born again Christians. You know, these are these far out, holy roller type of people. But not really. I mean, a born again Christian is, well, it's a Christian. I mean, you can't be a Christian unless you're born again. In the Bible, at least in the Bible's concept, there's no other type of Christian than born again Christian. Because to become a Christian, to receive Christ, it says here, I have to be born again first. I can't see the kingdom of God until that takes place in my life. And so here the imagery is of, is of a, a new birth, like I'm, I'm coming out of the womb again. I'm a new person. I'm starting a new life. So God has to reach into my heart if I'm going to receive the gospel and change my fundamental sin nature. He's got to recreate, make something new, make me a new birth, raise me from my tomb, whatever image you want to use. There has to be a supernatural work of God. That's what we mean by conversion. That's conversion. Conversion is God transforming my inner nature and my heart, enabling me to respond to the gospel. And uh, that's important because, you know, sometimes we use that word conversion, we, kind of, we don't use it that way. When people talk about converting today, typically, at least when I hear people talk about it, it's more external conversion, not internal conversion. Like I used to go to the Presbyterian church, but then I converted to Methodist or I used to be Catholic, but then I converted to Baptist. Or I was an Episcopalian, but then my fiancé was Jewish, so we decided where to get married, and so I converted to Judaism so that I could get married to my fiancé in his congregation. That's how we use the word. But that's not what the Bible's talking about here. It's, it's not going from one church building to another church building, or one denomination to another denomination. It's something transforming supernaturally in my heart that only God can do to make me a different person. Have you been born again? You can go to your whole life to church. You can be, you know, baptized, catechized, vacation Bible school, married, buried in a church. But it doesn't mean that you really know Christ or or that you've been saved in a biblical sense of the word. There has to be an inner transformation. And so rather than asking, do I go to church, you've got to look in your heart and say, do I love Jesus? Look in your heart and say, do I have a hunger to learn more about the Bible? Do I desire to pray? Do I have a desire to surrender my life to God? Am I eager to be in a church where I can worship with God's people? Do people see changes in my life? Are people saying, hey, you're growing in the Lord. You're, you seem to be more and more like Christ. And if those things aren't true, then I'm just saying you need to stop and say, time out, have I been born again? 
And if you haven't, you need to just get on your knees and say, Jesus, save me, change me, rescue me. And he will. Because that's what God does. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So call on the name of the Lord from your heart and just cry out to him. Because conversion is not about what building you go to and switching street addresses of where you worship. It's about your heart being changed so that you become a different kind of person. Become born again. Now this helps because I think this gives us an understanding of the process of conversion. That's one of the things we were looking for when we first started this. With how does someone come to the Lord? And so it looks like there's at least three logical steps. Uh, The first step is somebody has to speak the gospel. Then the second step is God does the secret work of regeneration in the heart to do a heart transplant, give us a new nature. And that's passive on our parts. We just receive that. We don't do anything. And then the third step is that we then are able and willing to choose the gospel. And now when someone speaks the gospel, now I'm like, yes! you know, Instead of being the cow staring at a stake, now I'm like the guy who's been out in the yard working all day from 8 in the morning till 6 at night and he's hot and he's sweaty and he hasn't had a drink all day. And now you put a big cold glass of ice water in front of me and say, you want that? <laughs> you bet I want that! And when I have a new heart and a new nature, then you put the gospel in front of me. Woo, you bet I want it. So God has to change my heart. And then when he changes my heart, I am able, willing, and certain to take it. No question I'm going to take it. It's irresistible. I can't resist it. It's like, yes, the gospel. Because God has changed my heart and made me a new person. So if someone speaks the gospel, God changes me, that's passive, then I choose to believe Christ. That's, that's active. Look at your sermon notes just once again. And I just want to kind of solidify this point because it's important. I'll tell you why it's important in a moment. But on page two, uh, I I listed three texts in which Jesus and the apostles teach that first God changes our hearts and then as a consequence, logically, we're able to receive Christ. Look at Jesus says in John 6. This is so plain. It's a about two-thirds of the way down on page two. Jesus said, Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus said. No one can come to me. In Greek, it's no one is able to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. (laughs) I'll tell you, that's a different kind of evangelism than we typically hear today. Like, oh, the reason you're not believing the message is because God hasn't enabled you yet because you're still stuck in your sins. Like, what? That's not how you woo people. That's what Jesus said. It was pretty out there, right in people's face. Acts 16:14. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. Get this. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Or this famous one from Ephesians. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. The faith you have in Jesus is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one and boast. And people, this is, this is why this is so important. This is why I'm kind of digging into the theological minutiae here. is because it comes down to who gets the credit for your salvation. The glory of God is at stake. And if, as so often evangelism is presented in America today, that it's all up to you, that it's the key is you, the decision completely rests with you, 
So you must choose now to come down this aisle and be saved. Pray this prayer and be saved. It all hinges on you. Then if someone does it, oh, they get all the credit. You know, it's like God voted yes for you, Satan voted no, you have the tie-breaking vote. You get all the credit. No. Who gets to boast? Only God gets to boast. Because if someone, if Joan's father comes to faith, or if the person you're praying for comes to faith, you need to be able to say, look what God did. A miracle took place, not something that I persuaded or, or, or did in that person's life. God has to change the heart. No, I understand. That's still a difficult doctrine to understand. And uh, I'm sure there's maybe objections coming into your minds. Um, I, I was thinking about objections I would have to this, and at least two came up in my mind. Objections to the idea that God opens the heart, and then as a result, we believe. One objection is theoretical. The second is more practical. The theoretical objection is, is pretty simple. It's kind of like, well, okay, if that's the case, why doesn't God open everyone's heart? I mean, why... Why do you have to wait 30 years or more for somebody or not open their heart at all? But then this other person, they hear it one time and he opens their heart right then. I mean, why, why does he work that way? And here, of course, we swerve into that lovely doctrine known as predestination. Ah. So I was trying to figure out how to handle this this morning and I'm basically just going to skip it, okay? Because... <laughs> <laughs> all right, I really have no choice. I, I just, I'm just going to skip it and... Uh, because, you know, it, it would take three to five weeks just to get us into this one. That's another sermon series I'm about to go on a sabbatical. But l- let me give you, a, a, but, you know, for those of you who are like, you know, cop out or whatever, let, let me give you a two-word explanation of predestination. Two-word explanation. Here it is. He's God. <laughs> That's it. That's not fair. How could he do that? He better explain that to me. Because, you know, if I don't understand it with my mind, then, I, then it can't be true because my mind is the center of the universe and my rationality, you know, whatever. <laughs> Just go ahead and argue that with God. I'm sure you'll win, really. Uh, he's God. He does as he pleases. He does as he pleases. That's the definition of being God. Is that you do whatever you want to do because you're God. Uh, it's, so he does as he pleases. He chooses who he wills. I don't know why. It's his mercy. You know, Paul gets asked that question in Romans 9, and Paul's answer is, who are you to talk back to God? Okay, thanks, Paul, but that's the answer. So, so that's one issue, is the theoretical issue, and, and it's, there's no merit in digging into that because you know, there's no answer, ultimately. God just says, I'm God. But the other, the other objection to the fact that God must open the heart and then a person believes is more practical, and it goes like this. If that's the case, why preach the gospel? You know, why should I even be out there telling anybody? If it's up to God to open people's hearts, then you know what's the point? I mean, why don't we just stay here in church and let God go out there and open hearts? Right? Hey, gee, Pastor, you've been pumping us up for two weeks about evangelism. You know, you got us memorizing verses for the gospel. Then you're telling us about evangelism. You don't have to fear. So I'm all pumped up. I'm sharing my faith. And then I come to church this Sunday and you let all the air out of the tire. Because now it's like, well, I can't save anyone. You know, what does it matter? Because God has to change their heart. There's nothing I can do. So... But, you know, uh, when William Carey, the, the great missionary to India, told his congregation that he wanted to go to India to preach the gospel, uh, there were people in his congregation who told him, Mr. Carey, if God wants to save the heathen in India, he will do it in his own good time and without your help. And, and so it's possible, you know, if you take this doctrine too far and without the rest of Scripture to fall into an unbalanced, what I would call, hyper-Calvinism 
where, where you, you don't even preach the gospel anymore because, you know, well, God will save whoever he wants to save, so I'm just going to go watch, you know, 24 or whatever and just relax and God will take care of all that. But that's not the case. Because do you remember last week's message? Remember last week's test, text? It said, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. What's the power for salvation? The gospel. So the means by which God opens hearts is through the gospel message. The gospel is that copper wire through which the power of God flows into individual hearts as God so chooses to distribute it in his own sovereign will and timing. So, so the way that someone's heart is opened is through the word. You get rid of the gospel, and it's not like people are going to be coming to the Lord. Because we come to the Lord, our hearts are opened through the gospel. So the gospel is an essential ingredient. It's the means. God wants the ends and the means in place. The end is salvation. The means is the gospel. Uh, look at your sermon notes again. Just a few more verses. And I'll wrap this up. Look on page 3. The means of conversion. Word and spirit. Romans 10.17 Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word of Christ. So the faith that I have to make the choice to believe in Jesus is something that comes by means of a message preached to me. Or look at the second one from the bottom, James 1.18. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth. How do we have this new birth? Through the word of truth. Or 1 Peter 1.23. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. How? Through the living and enduring word of God. So it's through the word. So we can't give up preaching the gospel. And you know what? I, I think it's just totally the opposite. I, instead of demotivating us from evangelism, I think this understanding of conversion should make us more motivated to evangelize. Because now the pressure's off. It's not about me coming up with the right formula of tricky sayings to persuade you and convince you and come up with the right argument or the right illustration. It's just present the gospel plainly like Paul did. I just present the gospel plainly and then God opens the hearts of whom he wants to. The pressure's off. All you have to do is sow the seed and God makes the plants grow. All you have to do is lovingly hand out the medicine and God brings the healing. All I have to do is lovingly spread the yeast and God is the one who makes the dough rise in his own time. God does the work of converting people to himself. So yeah, I, I think it's great. So when Joan's father doesn't come to the Lord for 30 years, she doesn't have to feel guilty. She doesn't have to feel like a failure. I mean, she still yearns for her father's salvation, but it's not like she blew it. God is faithful and God can do it in his own time when and how he chooses. And I'll tell you, that's what keeps me going in pastoral ministry, preaching the gospel. Because, you know, sometimes in pastoral ministry things go good and people come to the Lord. Sometimes you work on people and you work and you work they never come to the Lord. And, and you could easily beat yourself up as a pastor and be like, what am I doing wrong? But, you know, I'm not doing anything wrong as long as I'm preaching the gospel plainly. If I was going to be a missionary to an unreached people group, let's say I was going to go to western Afghanistan to some of those tribal peoples who've never heard the name of Jesus, and I were to go there to preach the gospel, which understanding of conversion would keep me going longer? The idea that it's all up to me to convince that person? Man, that would fry me soon. Because it's so hard to adjust to a new culture. But if I believed that the power was in the gospel, and even though I'm just an American, I don't understand that culture, if I can get in enough to share the gospel, and the gospel will do the work, 
then I could be there for 30 years without a convert. Because I'd be like, hey, it's God's time. It's God's thing. I'm just being faithful to, to spread the seed. That story of Jones' uh, father actually turned out really well. He did actually become a Christian eventually. Uh, but I think it was, I was told it was about two years before he died, uh, he became a Christian. And uh, what happened was um, his, his wife died. And in that sort of moment of his wife dying, uh, his granddaughter, so Jones' daughter, called him and was just talking to him on the phone and said, Hey, look, uh, Grandpa, you need to believe in Jesus. I know we've been telling you this for years, but this is the time, Grandpa. I mean, look what just happened. You've got to believe in Jesus now. And he did. And, and then he was a you know, he showed the fruit, and he was a Christian for the next two years, I guess, or so, and then, then he finally passed away himself. You know, should Joan kick herself? Like, she didn't say the right words and her daughter did. Does her daughter get the credit? You know, who gets the credit? And the answer is, they, they did a great job. They shared the gospel. And in God's time, he opened the heart. So, the pressure's off. Just share the gospel freely. It's not up to you to save anyone, because you can't. It's just up to you to, to tell the truth to people in a loving, gracious, and prayerful way. You sow the seeds around the South Shore, and then we pray for the Holy Spirit rain to come down from heaven and water those seeds so that a harvest of righteousness will spring up in God's time. Don't give up. Those of you who have been praying for years and years, don't give up. Just stay faithful at your job and trust God to do what's going to be best for His glory. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, I give You praise and thanks that You opened my dark, sinful, rebellious, two-year-old temper tantrum kind of heart to receive the glory of Jesus. Oh Jesus, my conversion, my pastoral ministry, my Christian life is all to your glory. I can't claim credit for any of it. I thank you, God, for the great work of salvation you've done in my life. I thank you, Lord, that this room is filled with people who've experienced your glory. And now, Jesus, we pray fervently for the reign of the Holy Spirit to fall on our loved ones, on our co-workers, on our friends and family. That, Lord Jesus, the gospel that we've sown would bear fruit in their hearts. Because, Jesus, we love you and we see your beauty and, and it just pains us that others don't see it. And we want them to know this beautiful Lord and Savior that we've found. Not that we're better than anyone or self-righteous, but, Lord Jesus, we're just beggars who found food and we want to show the other beggars where it is. So, Jesus, help us to be faithful. Help us to persevere and to trust that you are the one who changes hearts. And I ask all this in Christ's name.